Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today we're continuing our conversation with Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Welcome back to Crime Capsule, Lisa. It is so good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So picking up where we left off last week, we were talking about Route 66, its place in the Missouri and the national mythos. We were talking about road trips and about people such as Bonnie and Clyde who make road trips with back seats loaded with Tommy guns and bags of diamonds. <laughs> um, everything you might need, right? For a exactly. Trip to <laughs> Today, I want to ask you about a few other cases sure. in your book. Let's start with Wild Bill Hickok. I'm cheating a little bit, okay, uh, because your your chapter on Wild Bill, you sort of fess up right at the very front that Route 66 was, in fact, years away from being built when he had his uh, famous shootout, but the location, Springfield, maps right on to where the highway uh, would later run. Oh, yeah. Um and that and that's the thing about Route sixty six. It it just codified what was already there, and so it was the main it was the main road. Um, and that shootout happened on the on the square. Square's still there. You can go and you can go and stand where uh, while Bill stood and stand where Dave Tut fell dead. So um, it's very interesting, and it's a good illustration of the American mythos that we think about in, in, in this context, the Wild West and the, the Western, the walk down, call out, shoot out. And they're the closest uh, event that matches the Hollywood standard is um, the Hickok Tut fight. That, that's, the, you know, that's really the only place it ever happened. So many of the ones which have come down to us have acquired more, you know, sort of legend than fact, right? And there were not nearly as many um, contemporaneous accounts or witnesses that are reliable uh, in those, such as, say, Jesse James's different encounters you know, with police. In this case, you write that there were actually a a startlingly large number of witnesses because it did happen in broad daylight and it was announced and it was this sort of public spectacle and so forth. What, what had led to this encounter? Why, why was there a murder in public <laughs> uh, right then and there? <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is, you know, like all good, you know, good stories, um, there's a little bit of pride, there's honor and there's a girl. Um, you have to you uh, you have to look at it. It's July 1865. This is before quote you know the Wild West really uh, started. Uh, we are three months after the end of the Civil War. Springfield had been a major um, military uh, center there, and uh, Wild Bill Hickok had been a scout for the Union Army. And Davis Tut had been a Confederate soldier. Now, they had known each other for quite a while, and they were actually best friends, which you throw that one in there, too. Um, and ironically, um, it, it has a little bit of fate and destiny thrown in, too, because Davis Tut 
came from Yellville, Arkansas, and his father died in the Tut Everett family feud. It was kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. And so, and it was all over politics. Um, and so his father had died, other family members had died. And so here he is, they get, get past the war. Um, everyone's celebrating and he and Hickok spend a lot of time at the card table. And what started it, um, was one, they, they were, um, kind of feuding over a girl a bit. Um, she had, uh, had seen Ted and then she was seeing, uh, Hickok. And so they were kind of fussing and feuding over that. And then, uh, they had a large card game and, uh, Hickok lost $25, which doesn't sound like much, but in 1865, it was a very large sum of money. And so it had gone on for a little bit and he hadn't paid, uh, Dave Tut yet. So they're sitting at, at the card table again and Tut, uh, and at some point Hickok places his pocket watch on the table. And it had been his father's pocket watch. And Tut reminds him he still owes him $25, but he's sitting here playing poker. Um, and um, so before the night's over, Tut reaches over and grabs the pocket watch. And uh, Hickok tells him, don't wear that watch in public. So basically, uh, you also have to view this through the lens of honor culture, uh, Scotch-Irish honor culture. And at that point, um, Tut had a choice. He could agree, he could not wear the watch in public, and he was going to be considered a coward. Or he would wear the watch and it may lead to trouble. And another thing to consider is this is before Wild Bill was a legend. And this is before he was known as the best shot in the West. I mean, you know, uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, throughout the Old West era, everyone was compared to Wild Bill, that he was the best shot ever. And so... But at this point, he didn't have that reputation. He and Dave Tut were both um, veterans of the war and were both very deadly men. And so, to be honest, on that day, it was anyone's guess what might happen. So, Tut ends up wearing the, wearing the watch in public, and Hickok calls him out for it, uh, calls him out uh, to the square the next day uh, to defend his honor, basically. And so um, they line up, they end up on the square. There's about 25 people there at least because everyone's heard about it. Everyone's, everyone wanted to know whether or not Tut uh, was going to show up. And basically Hickok stands on the southeast corner of the square. It's an it's a, uh, open central square. And... Um, Tut is standing on the northwest corner in front of what was the courthouse at the time and had been a military headquarters and hospital during the Civil War. And um, they, they both drew. They, um, 
both shot, um, Tuts went a little wide, and Hickok shot him in the heart. And he ran over to the steps of the courthouse, said, boys, uh, boys, I'm dead, and fell over dead. I wanted to ask you about this. Your account is interesting because there is some debate over the weapon that that Hickok used. Some people say pistol, some people say rifle. And it just kind of struck me, with that many observers and contemporary witnesses, how was... Th- how was that not accurately noted? <laughs> I mean, it's it's not like you're kind of able to say, well, was it you know a Smith and Wesson or or was it a um, I don't know like a you know a Ruger, even though that didn't exist at the time. It's like it wasn't like which model of pistol, was right? It? Well, to be pa- to be perfectly honest, Hickok might have been carrying both. To be honest, um, uh, but it's you know to be honest, likely it, it was a pistol. Uh, he, um, he, uh, during his time in Springfield is when he honed his marksmanship on a pistol. He'd used a rifle for years as a, as a scout and, and, um, buffalo hunter, etc. But, um, so yeah, there, there are, there are differences. And I, I think part of that is, um, the witnesses all decided one, I don't think anyone really decided, thought it was going to uh, end up in a murder trial. Um, because we're three months after the war. These kind of things happened all the time. And in southwest Missouri during the war, it had the worst guerrilla warfare of anywhere in the country. Um, and so it was, you know, people had gotten used to people getting shot all the time. And so... Now suddenly, now now we have have someone dead, and we're actually charging murder. Um, and so you had, I think it was twenty four witnesses that that uh, were called in the trial, and they basically all said, uh, you know, I heard I, I heard a shot, but I didn't see anything. You know, <laughs> convenient. <laughs> no, oh, no, convenient. no, no one wanted no one wanted to put Wild Bill in prison over this. Because they probably wouldn't see the next shot, which would be coming for them. Uh, no, let me ask you this. Also possible. One, <laughs> one, uh, one, one last question I had for you on Wild Bill was, you note that reenactments are, of, of the shootout are fairly regular, uh-huh. uh, and, you know, even, even today. And yeah. this is, I just could not help but wonder, who gets to play which role? Do you draw straws? Do you, I mean, like, how do you, who, who gets the honor of falling I, I, down dead on the steps, right? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how, how they decide who plays who, but they, they do a reenactment of it, and they do a reenactment of the murder trial. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. Huh. But, but interesting, though, Wild Bill became the first celebrity of the Old West because of that, and it was because of Harper's Weekly. Um Shortly thereafter, a a reporter for Harper's Weekly shows up in town. He hears about this and starts talking to people. He talks to Wild Bill, who is, and Wild Bill was very good at his own, being his own spin doctor. And so he spun it, yeah, a very good yarn. And suddenly he was, you know, basically the first celebrity of the, of the Wild West. Bloody roots run deep in Route 66. Forgive me, but I... I had to. There's another figure who looms large in your book. Move to our second case of the day. It's Billy Cook, who was born in the area, um, southwestern Missouri, but whose life of crime actually took place on the road 
largely elsewhere. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Billy, but I have to say to our listeners that the the murders that Billy committed while on the road um, they were pretty grisly and they were they were pretty pretty shocking. So uh, so be warned, I mean, uh, listeners, it's it's not pretty and it's kind of unusually not pretty uh, compared to some of the other crimes that we've we've been talking about. Uh, but it is important for us to understand uh, what uh, what was taking place at the time. So uh, tell us about Billy Cook. Billy Cook is is a um, sort of the ultimate cautionary tale. Billy Cook could be anybody uh, is sort of the moral of the story in the end, and and it's the it's the moral of the story that people don't like to look at. Um, Billy was born in 1928 in Joplin, Missouri. His father was um, a miner, uh, sometimes minor. He wasn't good about keeping a job, and he was an alcoholic. He had an older set of kids from a first marriage, and then uh, he, there were two daughters and Billy from his second wife, and they lived in a you know mining shack uh, in town. And then it's very obvious things weren't good to begin with. And then when Billy was the youngest, he had been born with a a birth defect as as well uh, that paralyzed one eyelid. So he could not close one eye even when he was asleep. And so one of his nicknames that he got over time was Cockeye Cook. Um, And... um, there was an operation trying to correct it when he was a child and it actually made it worse. When he was four, his mother died under very suspicious um, circumstances. Basically, she was found bludgeoned to death uh, in the home. And um, Billy would tell the story, oh, I was at the yellow house and came home and, and you know, his mother was dead. Um Later on, after the killing spree, um, the psychiatrist that um, uh, that uh, reviewed the case and talked to Billy uh, pretty much all concluded they think that Billy probably watched his father kill his mother. Um, and so that was sort of step one uh, down the road. Then shortly later, Billy was five. Um, his father abandoned he and his sisters in a mining shaft just left them, um, didn't want to deal with it. And so they were, it's kind of hard to hear that phrase now, you know, it's kind of like when you say that, you know, we're so desensitized to so many terrible things, but still those words in that order, you know, left his children in a mine, abandoned his children in a mining shaft. Like that still has the power, I think, to send chills down our spine, doesn't it? It should, It, it really should. They, they were found, they were put into foster care, and, and for whatever fault that foster care has today, it is much better than it was then. And ironically, improvements to the foster care system came about because of this case later on. Um, they, the kids were separated. Um, the families that took the daughters did not want Billy, uh, because, and one of them even sighed because of uh, his deformity. So he ended up at um, 
the home of a foster mother. Um, her husband was there too, but he was an invalid. And she took in lots of children. Basically, this was their means of support. And over time, it came out that uh, the kids were physically and sexually abused. Billy also was small for his age. Even when he was grown, he, he was only about 5'5 five, five and 100, maybe 25 pounds soaking wet. So he was small for his age, um, and he kind of got the brunt of a lot of this. Ironically, in some of the live events that I do, um, I spoke with a woman um, this last year, about, about 18 months ago now, that her mother was best friends with one of his sisters that was also in foster care. And, oh, my goodness. How about that? And yeah. she, she said her mother would tell the stories that his sister Pearl they figured out where Billy was at because, and Billy's foster mother would not let him see any of the family at all, even his siblings. And um, so she, her mother would go with Pearl and they would stand in the alley. There was a wooden board fence uh, around the backyard and Billy had to do a lot of the, the chores in the house and clean a lot of the laundry. And even though he was very small, um, uh, she would tell the story about, there was a knot hole in the fence that they could look through. And he had, he was, he would have to jump and try to throw clothes over the clothesline to, to, um, to hang up the, the laundry. And Pearl would stand there at the fence and talk to him. And he was too short to actually see through the hole. So he didn't actually get to see her even. Uh, but she would talk to him and, and that was the only communication they had for years actually. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea. By the time he was 12, uh, he was running away and getting in trouble on purpose, trying to get sent to reform school uh, so he wouldn't have to stay there. Uh, eventually, they did send him. Um, unfortunately, what that did is basically teach him how to steal cars and a few things like that. He ends up back home uh, when he's about 17. He's trying to get things together. He try, um, One of his older, older sisters, brothers, gets him a job, uh, then steals his first paycheck. Uh, another brother-in-law uh, basically invited him along um, uh, to do something while the brother-in-law actually committed a petty robbery, which got Billy in trouble for being on probation. And then he went to the state penitentiary in Jefferson City. And the Missouri State Pen was known as the most violent penitentiary in the country. And in fact, it was, it was called the, you know, 47 bloodiest acres in America. And so, uh, Billy was thrown in with all of these very hardened criminals, um, was raped, um, beaten up, um, et cetera. Um, um, and, um, you know, just went through an awful lot. It's crazy. You know, when you, right, when you, when you learn about his backstory, the murders that he committed once he was out West, I mean, it's almost like, did he ever have any shot at all at a normal life? And the answer is exactly. no, the answer is absolutely not, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And we, we don't, at what point was that final straw? We're not sure. Um, so he ends so up, he leaves, yeah, he, yeah, leaves. He, yeah. he ends up getting out of prison. He's 20. He comes back to Joplin, you know, and he's, things just, you know, he can't get a job. Things just aren't working. So he ends up telling his family that he's going to hitchhike to California. 
And he does. He ends out in the desert, in a little desert town called Blythe, uh, kind of just a little white spot in the road. Gets a job at a diner, washing dishes, and he's there for eight or nine months. Things seem to be going well. Best, Basically, this is the best time of his life. And then no one really knows what happened. Something snapped. And he went hitchhiking again. He ended up in Texas. He ends up buying a handgun. And uh, he kidnapped a, a, a fella at gunpoint um, who was a mechanic. And the, he puts the guy in the trunk of his own car. And, and at some point, Billy slows down to go around a corner. And the guy's able to, to get the trunk lid open and jump out. And this is, this is late 1950. That's when this is happening. And so, but he's heading back to Joplin. He's heading this way. He's coming up. Route 66 through Oklahoma, and he ends up uh, getting picked up by the Mosier family. The Mosier family were on vacation out of Illinois. They were heading out west, and a young couple, uh, early 30s, and they had three children, and the family dog was in the car. So they pick him up, give him a ride. Uh, He holds them hostage. Uh, They ride around for three days. And at one point, uh, Mr. Mosier tried to grab the gun away from him. They fought over it, and uh, Billy ended up with the gun back. Um, On the third day, at some point, the kids start crying. Mrs. Mosier starts crying. The dog starts barking, and Billy starts shooting. He kills everybody. Um, And then then it's a matter of there's – I've seen debate about, you know, were the murders actually, did they actually occur in Oklahoma? Had he, had they gone over into Arkansas? Were they actually back up in Joplin? Because he did dump the bodies in uh, a mine shaft here. And again, stories that have come to me personally with oral, oral stories uh, at events have filled in a, a, some, um, some uh, details that I haven't seen published anywhere. I was at a book signing three or four years ago and a fella and his wife came and he said um, that um, his his dad was one of the officers who found the Mosier family bodies. He goes, he goes, but he says, um, Billy was in town and came to their house. Um, his, his, they, they had a farm just on the edge of town and uh, had come to their house because he knew his dad because his dad had arrested him before and knocks on the door and asks if he has any feed sacks that he could have. And, um, you know, his dad tells him, I'll get the hell out of here, Billy. Um, and, but doesn't think much about it. And then later they find the bodies and his dad realizes he probably, he probably had the bodies in the car in the driveway when he asked about it. Um, Another uh, fella at a, an event that I I did, um, and he was oh, he was in his late eighties, I guess. He um, he speaks up and he said, "I saw Billy Cook the the night he dumped the bodies." And I said, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Well, I'm sure it was that night." And he said, "He and a, a friend, they were about fourteen. He said, um, were." Um, playing cards in a mining shack out in the mining field. 
and uh, they they were out there because their you know so their parents wouldn't catch them. So they're playing cards and everything, and the door opens, and this guy walks in, and he said he had, and he describes and he just, he didn't know Billy personally or anything, but um, and of course at that point they hadn't figured out that Billy was the murderer. Uh, they were still looking for the bodies. I mean, they, they were missing. And so, you know, he's like, uh, and he said he introduced himself, told them his name. He was Billy Cook and, um, asked him, what, what are, what are you doing here? And they go, oh, we're playing cards. And, and he goes, I don't know why I said it. Something just told me to say it. And I said, yeah, our folks will be looking for us before long. And he said, Billy just talked to them for a minute and turned around and walked out. And he goes, after they found the bodies, and it was just, a, you know, he said stone's throw from the shack they were in. Um, he said, I've, I've thought ever since that me saying my, our folks might be coming any minute might have saved our lives that night. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Spooky, very, very spooky. I mean, yep. it's interesting because Billy, I mean, you detail that he basically continues hitchhiking into California for a little bit. He mm-hmm. hitchhikes there. He kills some more people yep. who have helped him. Mm-hmm. But it, but one thing that, that came up, he has a, he goes on a spree. I mean, it's sort of like people will pick him up, he'll kill them and, and then, you know, keep going. But it struck me, you know, he, he doesn't actually murder all of the people who helped him, just just some of them. And why is that? Well, what he said to the psychiatrists and, and what he said to the, the FBI and, and police officers when he was arrested was that, um, you know, he didn't want any trouble. But when 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 they gave him trouble, he, he got rid of him. He didn't really, you know, he didn't understand what the big deal was. He, he just, you know, it was like the, it was that disconnect at that point. Um and so, um, so you end up with the story of uh, Deputy Waltrip back in Blythe because he actually hitchhikes right back to the the town that he had been working in, and um, when they do find the Mosier family car that he had dumped in Oklahoma on Route sixty six, um, they found the receipt for the handgun that he bought in Texas, so they had his name. And that's when uh, the manhunt started. And actually, it was the largest manhunt in U.S. history until Osama bin Laden. Uh, 
with um, I forget how many thousands of uh, people involved, uh, but you know, uh, FBI, U.S. Marshals, uh, officers in 22 states and in Mexico. And so, yeah, it was, it was huge. And so, so the APB, once they figured out it was him, you know, the APB goes out everywhere. And, um, Deputy Waltrip out in Blythe sees this uh, APB come in that morning and he knows Billy because his wife works at the diner. And he knew that when Billy worked there, he stayed at a, you know, roadside motel. Uh, and shared a room with this guy, and he knew the guy still was there, so he thought, I'll go out there and see if he's heard from Billy. And so he goes out to the hotel, knocks on the door, door opens, and it's not the other guy. Billy opens the door and gets the drop on him, kidnaps him in his own patrol car, puts him in the trunk. Uh, drive uh, Deputy later says, drove around for about 45 minutes, stopped, popped the trunk, told him to get out and lay down, you know, face down in the ditch. And he thought, this is it. I'm dead. And um, he said, Billy stood over him for a couple of minutes and then got back in the car and drove off. And after he was arrested, they asked him why he didn't shoot him. And his answer was, his wife was the only person who was ever nice to me. Which really, you say that he is the kind of the lesson, uh, the cautionary lesson, the cautionary tale. But it's interesting because there's a there's a lesson there too in that always be kind to people that you meet, right? Because you have no idea how it's going to come back to you. That, it's that's like, tr- that's it's the true. opposite of a cautionary tale. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, who would who would have thought, you know, just her being herself saved her husband, you know. But so it just wasn't that simple, you know. But then ultimately, you know, the, the sort of the end of the story was he kidnaps two fellows on a, you know, a, a, a hunting fishing trip and he takes them down into Mexico because he he is he's got a plan to escape, uh, wants to get down to a, a Santa Rosalia that's on on the um, west side of Baja, California. And then uh, there was a ferry that went over the mainland in Mexico. And so he planned on getting away that way. Um and but by that time, of course, they're looking for him too. And the local police chief ha- had the APB, and um, he's walking around the the town market and sees Billy and walks up and is, grabs the gun out of his um, uh, uh, belt before uh, Billy has a chance to react. And that's how he got caught. And he meets uh, he meets his end in the gas chamber, but very shortly thereafter. Um, But you write in this kind of interesting coda to his story that uh, Billy actually had a strange afterlife. And he had sort of two afterlives. He had an afterlife both in his physical body uh, with what what happened to his cadaver, his corpse. And then he also had an afterlife in the legacy that he left behind and the way that his story became an inspiration for other media. Basically, he gets convicted of the Mosier family murders in Oklahoma, is sentenced to life in prison um, because he's found insane. Uh, the judge actually, in pronouncing sentence, uh, states that we created this monster. Society is responsible for this monster, which I think the judge was pretty accurate. There were a lot of places I think that something could have happened and maybe this wouldn't have gone this direction. But uh, then California files charges on one of the murders out there. 
and uh, he's convicted, sent to San Quentin and, and executed in the gas chamber, as you said. And then there was a mortician in Comanche, Oklahoma, that had basically no connection to any of this, but he'd been around long enough that he remembered um, some of the outlaw, the gangsters in the 30s when they would uh, get murdered, that they would put their bodies on display and charge money. That happened with the Mar Bar. Um, the Barker boys, etc. So he came to Joplin and found Billy's dad and got got his dad's to his dad to agree to let him go claim the body and do whatever he wanted, basically for fifty dollars. And so he drives out to San Quentin in his hearse, pits up the body, brings it back to Comanche, Oklahoma, puts the body on display. Um. And charges fifty cents a head, and makes like six thousand dollars. Makes a killing, right? I'm sure. Right. Yeah. yeah, and and this is like pardon the pun. Or you know, yeah, nineteen fifty-two uh, at this point. And so, um, one of the one of Billy's sisters hears what's going on. She hires an attorney, and they get a court order to get his body back. So they, um, it's brought back. Uh, under police escort, and they stop in Galena, Kansas, just on the other side of the state line, and they wait uh, till after dark. Um, and they the grave had been opened in the family plot in Peace Church Cemetery, but um, so they wait until almost midnight. I mean, midnight, of course, and and come on over, and um, there the family minister is there. And he's there with his wife and baby daughter. And basically the officers and the, the couple of cemetery workers and the minister and his wife and daughter, they're the only ones there. Um, the family didn't go at that time because they were afraid people were going to make a scene. Um, and so uh, they buried him by the headlights of the cars. Um, interesting note is that um, there is a, uh, a legend that the cemetery is haunted anyway, but one of the legends of the cemetery is people will hear a crying baby and no one's really figured out why, why they hear a crying baby there. There's no story that anyone can put with it. And again, this was at a public event. I did um, old, very elderly woman and her daughter were there. And um, at one point she, you know, says to me, I the the older lady she says, I think I'm the crying baby in Peace Church Cemetery, and I said, you know, what do you mean? What? <laughs> yeah, what? what do you mean? <laughs> why? Why do you think Hold that? Up. <laughs> and she said she was the minister's baby, and she said that she and her mother were in the car the whole time, and that her mom and dad always said that as soon as they pulled in the cemetery, she started crying and never stopped until they left. And then she stopped crying. And she goes, I don't know why, but whenever I hear that story, I just wonder if it's me that they hear crying. So who knows? That is a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, we're going to just roll with that. Um, okay. Interesting. Uh, and then, no, and then it turned, yeah. and, and then it inspired, you know, um, a classic movie and really Billy Cook is the reason that your mother told you not to hitchhike or not to pick up hitchhikers, not to pick up hitchhikers, not yep. to pick up hitchhikers. Um, 
I've done a little bit of that in my day and have been very fortunate to meet some good ones. Um, but, you know, you know, there's a little little frisson that goes down the spine every time you you, you stop and um, you just wonder, you know, you do just wonder. Even so, even so. Um, Lisa, your book is a real smorgasbord. You've got mad scientists, you've got mad doctors, you've got mad brewers, you've got mad lynch mobs, you've got mad gangsters, uh, you've got mad hitchhikers. It seems like everyone who travels down Route 66 is touched in some (laughs) way, you know, aren't they? And listeners who want to learn more about uh, all of these mad people who do terrible things can absolutely pick up a copy and find out just how touched these these people are. But before we go, I wanted to ask you a little bit about an aspect of your work that we mentioned last week. Uh, normally, uh, when we finish talking about our cases, I, I like to ask about sort of aftermaths and epilogues. Um, well, for you, aftermaths and epilogues <laughs> take on a very specific and unusual dimension. You are not just a historian and an attorney. You are also a paranormal investigator, which means you were going out in direct pursuit of those ephemeral, ethereal aftermaths that haunt the roadsides and the byways of southern Missouri uh, still Today, I mean, for you, the aftermaths are the ghosts that you are going out looking for yourself. <laughs> so just tell us, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Well, okay. I, I've always been interested in um, the supernatural. I, I grew up uh, on a farm on, outside of Joplin that was the site of a Civil War battle and had activity. And basically, you know, I've seen things, I've, you know, experienced things that, you know, I accepted these things, you know, happen. I don't know why. And then, and I'll be real honest, the, what, what got me um, going in, in this direction is um, I was looking at a house to buy, oh, let's see, about 22 years ago now, uh, actually a block and a half from the house I'm in now um, and with my ex-husband. And we, it, it's a turn of the century arts and craft home, very, very beautiful. We walk in and we've been upstairs with the agent and she and I had walked back down to the living room and there was a, a four flight switchback staircase um, going from the living room upstairs. And we're staying there talking and, you know, ghosts or something like that are the furthest thing from my mind. I've got numbers in my head trying to you know, think about this house. And my ex-husband, he's walking down the steps, and I start noticing he'll take a step or two and stop. Step or two, stop. Starts looking over his shoulder and so on and so forth. And he finally gets down. I mean, it takes him probably two minutes to get downstairs. And so, you know, you know I'm thinking, what in the world is wrong with you? And he's like, did you guys hear that? And we're like, no. So then we're down in the basement a little bit later, and there's a central room and then a couple of side rooms. And the, the central room, you know, is massive, bid fit walls, etc. And the old boiler's still standing there. They had wandered over to one of the side rooms. And I, I was just lingering for a second, kind of looking over at the boiler. All of a sudden, I had the distinct impression of cold. And I mean, ice, ice cold of a thumb being laid on one side of my neck. And then one, two, three, four fingers on the other side. And then it goes through the back of my neck. 
And it was like, okay, that's a little up close and personal. Not sure I want to do my laundry here with someone doing that. So I walk over to the, um, the room, the door to the room that they're standing in. And I hear the, the agent say, now I don't know what this room would have been used for. And I look in the room and there's one wall of old apothecary cabinets, seven metal sinks on one wall and the largest oh drain in the floor that you've ever seen. Uh-oh. And this I just isn't looked, promising. Yeah. And so I just <laughs> looked at her and I said, I'll tell you what it is. It was the embalming room. And I turned around, walked to the stairs and I can still hear her stiletto heels clicking on the concrete, following me real quickly. And she goes, well, I guess I should tell you this was a mortuary in the 1930s. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, I figured that out. <laughs> yeah. Was that on the disclosures, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for the new buyer? Yeah, no. I don't think so. Um, so, but that was that experience. I started, okay, I want, I want to start, I want to find out why these things happen. And so I started researching, started investigating, started working with historic uh, sites, which led to writing books. And here we are. And I, I, I do public events and so forth. And then um, we have, so I, you know, I have a research team, Paranormal Science Lab. I have another project, Dark Ozarts, which uh, is a TV show in pre-development that um, is all about the dark history and legends and folklore of the Ozarts region. So all from, tr- from looking at a house, I guess. You know, I've got a friend here in New Orleans. We're pretty accustomed to stories like this in New Orleans, as you might imagine. And I have a friend here in town who uh, lived for a while in a house that was absolutely 100% haunted by an old Civil War soldier whom she saw one night, you know, just in the hallway. Uh, She told me the story. um, And it's sort of like, it's not exactly normal, but it definitely, in some places, is not abnormal, right? It's just kind of part and parcel of uh, certain inhabited uh, landscapes. Um, well, I think the paranormal is actually more normal than we think. Um, actually, my co-producer in Dark Ozarks, he, he's fond of saying that, that actually the paranormal is, is very normal. It happens, and it's people's reaction. And you can accept it as this is just a part of life, or you can be startled and frightened and consider it the boogeyman. I do have one question for you about this, and we're going to have to have you back on. I'm I'm trying very hard, uh, <laughs> spill a few beans for our listeners here, but I'm trying very hard to propose to our team that we can do uh, some spooky crimes this fall for Halloween, you know, sort of ghost oh, crimes. That would you be know, cool. I mean, there's just such good stuff, right? And yes, we're, there are. We're working on it. Uh, early days, and and we'll see we'll see how it goes. But my hope is that we can put something like that together, cool. and we'll definitely have to have you back to tell us. Tell us more uh, about it. But so I want to ask about tradecraft. <laughs> like, what are the tools? What are the gadgets that yeah. you bring? You yeah. know, so what do you, what do you got? <laughs> well, first and foremost, it's a lot like writing. Uh, research is the biggest tool. Um, finding out everything you can, but um, interviewing people, going on site, um, observation. Our approach is to uh, observation and documentation. Um, and yeah, we, we use all kinds of different kinds of uh, photography, videography, audio, um, and there are some there are some gadgets. To be perfectly honest, most of the quote gadgets that are used on the reality shows are less than best methods. Um, okay, <laughs> but but it makes good TV. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, but 
you know, our approach is to document everything that we can. And, and we, we've caught some fantastic, um, photos, video, um, EVPs, electronic voice phenomena, things like that. But 99% of what you see out there on the internet, you know, when people say, Oh, I caught this or that it's, it's not what they think it is. Um, and, uh, you can take 10,000 photos and you, if you're lucky, you get one that has an anomaly in it that can't be explained. So it, it takes a lot. Yeah. You mentioned in your chapter on, on Billy Cook and Peace Church Cemetery, that that is a particularly productive site and that you have gone out, uh, sort of looking for, I, th- I think you call them something like shadow people or, or what, what is it? Yeah. Shadow, uh, shadow people are seen there. Uh, shadow people basically, um, Think of an apparition, but instead of the image of a person and, you know, the, the flowing, you know, the lady in white kind of image, uh, shadow person is a shadow that is darker than it should be, is the only way to describe it. I mean, it's darker than darkness. It's like an absence of light versus a shadow that tends to be in a human form. Interesting. And you have footage of that or, or uh-huh. photography of mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah we've, we've caught show people in a number of places. I don't want to stop talking about this <laughs> <laughs> because this is kind of the most interesting thing. But um, unfortunately, we are, we are just about at time. We're going to have to have you back, uh, Lisa, because this is, uh, I mean, there's just such a lovely metaphor there, too, for, you know, the victims of these crimes, right? They have become shadow people in a, in a way and... For all of us who are interested in in um, sort of reclaiming those stories, right? I mean, you're doing a wonderful job of bringing these shadow people, like the Mosier family, back to light, you know. And so we very much appreciate you're doing that. I, I guess I would just have one last question for you: Is it do you have any advice for the aspiring uh, Mulders and Scullies out there, the the wannabe ghost catchers? The I I I, w- I would find someone that has experience and see if you can go along some, you know, different uh, investigators are looking for new members um, or go to public events and try different, different teams because different people have different approaches and they may not all be for you, but um, find out as much as you can. Don't just jump into it because um, I have, I have some people, I have seen people that have had some negative repercussions because doing foolish things. Life lesson there. One more cautionary tale. Don't do foolish things. Yeah. Lisa, thank (laughs) you so much for joining us. This has been a total joy and I really appreciate all the work that you have done to tell uh, these stories, both for the victims themselves and for our edification. So really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. This This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'd be happy to come back. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Lisa Livingston Martin, author of Missouri's Wicked Route 66, Gangsters and Outlaws on the Mother Road, published by the History Press. We have a few more episodes on road trips and great escapes left in our summer series, so stay tuned and see you next week. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. 
To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.